What does it take to change a habit? We've all struggled to lose weight or exercise or get up earlier or all sorts of things we wish we'd do differently. But it's never easy to change something we've been doing for years, is it? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran and welcome to Bible 805. It's never easy to change even the most simple of habits, but in our podcast today, we'll see that the followers of Jesus not only change their personal behavior from that of fearful cowards to fearless leaders, but that thousands of Jewish believers totally change the faith practices that have been the core of their identity since the time of Abraham. In our podcast, we'll look at the history of the incredible changes that took place after Jesus' resurrection that we read about in the book of Acts, and then we'll look at two of the earliest books that were written to the church, James and Galatians. First, let's talk about some basic facts about the book of Acts. It was written by Dr. Luke. He was a Greek, and as far as we know, he was the only non-Jewish writer of a New Testament book. Now, he was a companion of Paul's later in his life, but we don't know exactly when they linked up. About midway through the book of Acts, he starts talking about the experiences of Paul as a we, instead of just relating them. And in his New Testament book that he wrote, his New Testament gospel, the book of Luke, he's just reporting what happened with different people. So we know that he was probably very interested in the history of the church long before he met Paul, but then later on he became his companion, and he was an excellent historian. He carefully researched his facts, and we know from the way he presented things And the fact that he doesn't record either the death of Paul or the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD, that Acts was probably written in the early 60s. And of course, the book of Luke was written earlier. Now, some have proposed that it was written in Rome with Paul. Paul was very busy writing to the various churches. Later on, we're going to talk about what are the so-called prison epistles, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. There the prison letters. Epistles is just a big word for letters. But when Paul was writing these, perhaps Luke was occupied with writing a history of what had brought them to that point. And what some writers have said, and I think there's a lot of validity to this, is that Luke was writing this as sort of a legal brief. They were going to be presenting Paul's case to the emperor, and he was writing this history to show the Christian Christianity was not this terrible, weird cult, but that it was really a very viable faith that had its roots in the Old Testament that it was not subversive. A lot of times he talks about the different problems that they had in different areas, and he shows that they were religious ones, that they weren't trying to overthrow the state. And so tradition has has said that, you know, perhaps it was a legal brief used to defend Paul. And I think there's a lot of validity to that. If that is the case, it worked, (laughs) because Paul was set free after he had his trial. And he was then able to go on some additional missionary journeys. Now, sadly, it wasn't long after that, though, that he was again taken as a prisoner. And this time he was not released. In his final imprisonment, one very poignant thing that Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.11 
is he says, only Luke is with me. And he's asking that some other people come or some different things be sent to him. But Luke apparently was such a faithful, good friend. And I would imagine that he was with him until the very end. If you want to see a really good movie on this, and I think it's a, all in all a quite accurate representation, I highly recommend the movie Paul, the Apostle of Christ. It's really quite good, and I, I think you would, would enjoy it and learn some things from it. But let's go back to the book of Acts and look at what it tells us about the start of the church. In the Gospels, Jesus has risen, he's appeared to his disciples, and Acts sort of continues from there, where Luke begins by saying, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And many commentators, I'll just stop right there, and say how they point out that Jesus began the work, and of course, we are all commissioned to carry it on. But let me go on with the passage where it says, until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he'd chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, when he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you will have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? At this time, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up to the sky as he was going, and when suddenly, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now let me comment a little bit on this passage. First of all, it says Jesus was with them for 40 days. And, you know, unfortunately, we really don't know a whole lot about that. I mean, that must have been the most fascinating time, but we, we just don't know a lot. It does say that he talked about the kingdom of God. And we know that that means how we are supposed to live as a citizen of it. And then one of the things that I love that it talks about, it says, And one time when he was eating with them, you see he ate regularly with his disciples. He was risen from the dead. He was fully alive. He had a body they could touch, they could eat. One of the first things he did, remember, when he rose from the dead, is he goes out to where some of the disciples had gone back fishing and... They're having a hard time gathering fish, and he hollers at him and says, Try it on the other side! And then Peter realizes that it was Jesus, and so they throw their nets over there, they get all these fish, they come to the beach, and it said that Jesus was already preparing breakfast for them on the beach, and, and they all had breakfast together. And I just love that, how Jesus ate with his disciples just like he had done before his crucifixion. What I find interesting 
is it doesn't say that he did all these astounding miracles where he could have made the temple disappear and then reappear and he could no he ate with his disciples he talked with them he answered their questions he promised them that they would be empowered by the holy spirit but then and this must be one of those kind of head smacking times where jesus is sort of going oh i don't believe this i do not believe this i cannot believe this and that is he's telling them this astounding stuff about the holy spirit and then they go oh yeah and by the way are are you going to are we going to get the kingdom now will it be restored to israel are are you going to be like the kingly messiah now are you going to step up to it and jesus is going no 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 um And he says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. God will break into history, but you're not supposed to be worrying about that. And he says, what you should focus on, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. You see, the thing that he's saying there is that our focus isn't to be on the second coming and to wondering about dates and times and signs and you know whatever no we're supposed to concentrate on being his witness and notice that that's who we are he doesn't say and this is real important listen carefully he doesn't command them to be his witness see a lot of times we read this verse and we think it's a command that you should be a witness you should do that no he said you will be my witness once you know Jesus is Savior, and people know that, you are his witness. Now, you may be a lousy witness, and you may be one that does not walk worthy and doesn't live up to your calling, or you can be one that Jesus can be proud of. And so we just need to remember that we are his witnesses. We are his representatives and we need to work very hard to be good ones so what do they do they return to jerusalem they wait and they pray then pentecost arrives now pentecost comes 50 days after jesus resurrection and 10 days after he went back to heaven the holy spirit descends on them and we don't know exactly what happened but there was this noise and and people heard them speaking and i mean it was a big deal event And then Peter goes out and gives one of the most powerful sermons ever. He explains what's happening. He says this was prophesied by the prophet Joel, that the Holy Spirit would descend on all people. And he identifies Jesus as the Messiah. And he says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And 3,000 responded at that time. We're going to take a little parenthesis here to talk about something that's really important for you to understand on how we do evangelism today. And that is, I want to clarify the huge difference between the uniqueness of the ministries of Peter and Paul. First of all, let's look at Peter's audience. It says in the passage, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under 
under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together, and it talks about how there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and all this kind of thing. Now, what's important about this, when it talks about God-fearing Jews, these are people who are both Jews and converts to Judaism. And they had taken the time and the expense to travel to Jerusalem for probably both Passover and Pentecost. So they came prepared with a rich history of God's word. They knew about the promised Messiah. They were looking forward to him. And so when Peter showed them Jesus and he talked about how he fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament, they had the predisposition to believe and that's why they were able to respond very knowledgeably, very quickly, and so many were saved. But you see, it's very, very different with the Apostle Paul. When he went and traveled and shared the gospel, what happened much more often, and this was what happened in Ephesus in Acts 19, it talks about how Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left him. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, you see, his approach was to have these lengthy discussions, interactions. He had to lay a groundwork of knowledge and background of the Old Testament because many of the people in Paul's audience knew little or nothing about the whole Old Testament faith. They weren't prepared. And the challenge to the church today is that many of us grew up in the church when America and your world, if you're you're listening elsewhere, the world was much more more attuned to the Bible. It had much more of a Christian mindset that it absolutely doesn't have today. Where this is particularly important is for boomer leaders, those who grew up in a world where really everybody knew the Bible. Now, maybe they didn't believe it, but they knew about it. They knew the basic stories and they respected it. Billy Graham, one of the foremost evangelists of this time that many of us grew up, is he would repeatedly make the statement, the Bible says, and he would point his finger and you could just kind of see him doing that. People took that as a statement of authority. They don't today. And many evangelists today, they give other stories and they might talk about the Bible, but they don't use it with the same authority because people just don't accept that. You see, Billy Graham's audience had a background of biblical worldview. And after they had a clear message and they were shown how Jesus fulfilled what was promised in the Bible and could meet their needs, people responded. But we are in a very, very different world. We're a lot too like it was for the Apostle Paul when he went to Athens and he saw the people worshiping every imaginable God. And he said to them, he said, you know, that, you know, when he saw these idols all over, he said, the God that you worship unknowingly, I'm going to preach him to you, the unknown God. Well, he really didn't have much of a response on that. And so the response is, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. And you see, that's what we need to expect more so today. 
oftentimes not these huge responses. I mean, if God wants to give that, that's great. But so much more often today, we could share a little bit about our faith. People might laugh at us. They might sneer. But some people might say, well, we want to hear you a little more again. So I think we need to realize that more often than not, we need to engage with people on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We can't just challenge people to trust Jesus and then be done with it. That's why groups like Evangelism Explored and Alpha do so well, and I would encourage you to check out some of these things. Again, remember, like we talked about last week in the podcast, all the religions acknowledge that someone named Jesus lived, but we need to make sure people are talking about the real Jesus of history, the Jesus of the Bible. And two, we need to let people know that Jesus' expectations on how we are to live are very clear. And what it did for the people, the early converts, is it totally transformed their way of worshiping God. No longer were they to do the sacrifices in the temple. All of that was gone. Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies. And so this was this was a really radical change. And some of the early books of the New Testament are written to really clarify this. Remember, Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount that he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Well, what did he mean by that? Well, that's what some of the early writers worked hard to explain. Now, probably the very first book actually written in the New Testament, and this is kind of surprising to people sometimes, is the book of James. James was written by a brother of Jesus. Most likely he was the oldest after Jesus and it's kind of interesting to look back at a little bit of the history about him and things that the Bible mentioned about him before his book. In Matthew 13:55, it says, "Is this not the carpenter's son?" It's when Jesus came back to Nazareth. Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? He's kind of saying, you know, isn't you know this you know Jesus one of the hometown kids basically? And James was his brother. He's listed first. He was probably the oldest. And then in Luke 8:2, he was probably one of the brothers who came with their mother to take Jesus back home. He was out there preaching, and here is my brother and he's claiming to be God and you know that would be really really weird and so he came to take his ho- him home and of course Jesus didn't go he said no you know I'm, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing in John 7 5 it makes a statement even his brothers didn't believe in him so early in Jesus' ministry, he was rejected by his brothers, and that's totally understandable. Someone you grew up with, all of a sudden, they're out there preaching, and people are saying that that person is God. That would be very, very hard to grasp. But things changed. In 1 Corinthians fifteen seven, this is the great passage that talks about Jesus' resurrection. And let me read it to you. It's kind of interesting. It says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, but that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. 
then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. Paul is talking about this. So it's kind of interesting in this passage that the only individuals that Paul mentions that Jesus appeared to one-on-one after he rose from the dead are Peter and James, who were the leaders of the early church. And obviously, after that meeting, James totally changed. He, Jesus' mother, and his other brothers were with all of the other disciples, Acts one fourteen tells us, in the upper room. Paul lists meeting with James early on in Galatians one nineteen, where he says, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And it's very interesting, by Acts 15, which is early on in the church, at the very first council of the church in Jerusalem, Peter speaks, Paul speaks, others speak, but James who is obviously now the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He is the one who gives the final decision of the council. Now, history tells us that James was indeed the leader of the Jerusalem church, and though many others left during times of persecution and trial, he never did. He stayed there, but he was martyred for his faith in the early 60s. But now, let's look at the book of James briefly. He starts it out by saying, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Just a few comments on this verse. Um, We're all familiar with that passage on asking for wisdom, but we oftentimes forget that it's in the context of trials and persecution. And the thing that I think is important about that is just to remember that a lot of times when we're having a hard time, that's when we need wisdom. How do we act then? How do we express our faith? How do we trust God? But if we ask him for wisdom, then he will give it to us. Now, the early church was persecuted. He was martyred. And James, though, is not only in this passage saying, you know, ask for wisdom when you're in the middle of trials, but the entire book talks about how you need to live what you believe. James one twenty two is a great summary of the book where it says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And then the importance of faith and deeds where he goes on to say, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God. Good! Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, 
and not by faith alone. Now let me give you some historical context because it's really important that you understand this. In the ancient world, you could believe whatever you wanted to believe and you could believe in as many gods or religions or whatever. You could believe in Isis and you could believe in Mithras and you could uh, sacrifice incense to the emperor and you could believe in all these different things, sort of cover all your bases if you could afford the initiation fees and the sacrifices. And what was interesting about all of these religions though is they didn't care how you lived. You could pledge allegiance to any god you wanted to and that particular reason really didn't care how you lived. But the Christian life is very, very different. It demanded that if you belong to Jesus, your life should show it. And James is really pointing this out. He is showing how are you supposed to live when you're saved, when you're under new management, when you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He talks about how it's so important to control our tongues. He talks about how important it is to submit to God and not boast about tomorrow. Also, how we shouldn't show favoritism. He talks about patience and humility. And then he ends with some words about prayer that I want to comment on. He says, admit your faults to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous man has great and wonderful results. Elijah was as completely human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for the next three and a half years. That's James 5, 16, and 17 in today's Living Bible. Now, what I want to point out here, and and please listen, is that the verse says, the prayer of a righteous man, say righteous person, will accomplish, can accomplish great things. What I want to emphasize is that it only takes one person. Sadly, I think we we sort of have this thing in our lives today that if we get a whole bunch of people to pray that God's sort of like taking votes and that he will answer prayers more if it's, you know, if a whole lot of people pray for it. And that's just not true. You know, just one person, God listens to our prayers and he can do mighty things. Moses, it said his whole God's idea to destroy all of Israel was changed because Moses prayed. And then sadly in Ezekiel, it says that God looked for someone to stand in the gap so he didn't have to bring judgment and it says he could not find one person who would do that so your prayers one person's prayers can be extraordinarily powerful and be encouraged by that now let's go on and talk briefly about galatians it was written by paul and in the book of galatians his whole idea there is to clarify that grace is what saves you not the law and paul starts out by talking about his background and he actually fills this in a little bit more in philippians 3 where and he can speak so powerfully to this because he says if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh i have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, flawless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. 
for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And he shows that observing the law is not the way to salvation. He goes on and he says, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. So too, we put our faith in Christ Jesus, the way we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. You see, being justified means being made right with God. And previously, the Jews had thought, you obey all these rules, and that will do it. And Jesus came to say, no, that's not it. I'm giving my life as payment for the sins of the world. And if you trust me, that's what it takes to be justified before God. And then, of course, if you do that, it changes everything. Everybody has access to it. He goes on in Galatians and he says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see, everyone now has access to God. In the times that the people were living, some of the Pharisees actually had a prayer where they thanked God that they weren't female or a Gentile. And Paul comes along and says, no, in Jesus, all those restrictions, all those prejudices are gone. We can all have faith in Jesus. But now you might ask, well, then what is pleasing to God? And he goes on in Galatians to talk about not forced works, but the fruit of the Spirit, which he says is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law. And he says, brothers and sisters, if some of you, you mess up, you're caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit, restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, you may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. And you see, these are very similar things to the Old Testament commands of the people of God to care for one another, to care for the widows, the orphans, the aliens, to bear one another's burdens. You see, again, everything, though, changed with Jesus. His death fulfilled the law. Now people are no longer identified by how they worship through sacrifices and going to the temple and all of those outward things that they were required to do. Now people are identified with God by who they worship and that who, of course, is Jesus and by how closely they live like him, by their discipleship. Now, how did Jesus say that people would know that we're his disciples? He said, if we love each other. And the New Testament is filled with ways that we can practice loving one another. But let me just read to you a very famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13 that explains love because sometimes I think we think of love as sort of this mushy emotion and maybe that's part of it at times. But in many ways love is just extremely practical. This is how 1 Corinthians 13 describes love in the message version. It says love never gives up. 
Love's care, love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. Doesn't have a swelled head. Doesn't force itself on others. Isn't always me first. Doesn't fly off the handle. Doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Doesn't revel when others grovel. Takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. Puts up with anything. Trusts God always. Always looks for the best. Never looks back, but keeps going until the end. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson. They're in downloadable PDF format. And there's other materials for you also on www.bible805.com. And do subscribe to these podcasts so you don't miss any of the series as we finish up the, the New Testament and our year in the Bible. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word, and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.